The intellectual question I'm curious about is, what's the difference between people and machines and how they think? Who cares and will it have an impact on organizations, society, and careers? And so that was really the foundational question. And man, I'll tell you, when you're interested in that question, it gets really complicated before it gets easy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is an executive leader who creates new economic value in service markets through the application of artificial intelligence and digital capabilities. Since the early days of his career, he's been imparting the highest level of intellectual understanding of the way artificial intelligence and other digital applications function and how they evolve markets. He's earned a bachelor's, MBA, and DBA, all from Harvard University, where he's also taught at the Harvard Business School, where he's prepared aspiring leaders to use artificial intelligence and computable systems for competitive advantage. He's also worked at PwC where he served as an advisor to senior executive teams looking to develop stronger technology-based innovation strategies, prepare for more rapid AI-driven change, and pursue new growth models that leverage emerging technological capabilities. Currently, he's a senior partner at Digital Intent, where he helps organizations transform themselves through digital innovation. Today, he's here to talk to us about his book, The Self-Made Billionaire Effect, How Extreme Producers Create Massive Value. This book is the first study on self-made billionaires to document the personal traits that enable them to achieve breakthrough growth in existing markets. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a man who is fascinated by what drives successful growth businesses, someone who is passionate about sharing that learning with others, Dr. John Sviokla. Dr. Sviokla, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. My pleasure, Harpreet. This is a great opportunity. I'd love to uh, get a chance to talk, spread the message, and uh, help people grow. Absolutely. You know, I first came across your book a couple of years ago. I think it was like two two years ago uh, during the summer, and I got it on Audible. And it's one of the few books that I've listened to like four times on Audible. Then I went and I picked up the physical copy and even read through that a couple of times. And interestingly enough, it wasn't until I started researching you that I found out that you had such a interest and background in, in artificial intelligence. So I'm wondering, how did you first get introduced to artificial intelligence? Well, I'll tell you, it's really interesting. I was an MBA student and that was the spring of 1982 and or spring of 1983. And I was uh, in a class called The Coming of Managerial Capitalism. And what it was is the story of Rockefeller and Sears and Ford and 
and DuPont. And I thought, you know, I'm said, well, I'm sitting here. It's, you know, the early 1980s. I said, what in my lifetime is going to look like the transformation of industrial and energy and so forth that happened then? And I thought, well, we're mostly a service economy becoming more and more of a service economy. Computers are going up like crazy. So it's going to be a confluence of those two things. It's going to be computers helping people think and be more productive in knowledge work, cognitive work, and the growth of the service economy, and then the interplay between that and the physical economy. So anyway, that's I was literally sitting in class thinking about that. And then I started getting interested in the doctoral program. And I thought, you know, what I really want, what I'm really, the intellectual question I'm curious about is what's the difference between people and machines and how they think? Who cares? And will it have an impact on organizations, society, and careers? And so that was really the foundational question. And man, I'll tell you, when you're interested in that question, it gets really complicated before it gets easy. (laughs) It's very interesting how you kind of collided and combined two disconnected ideas and found a intersection where you could excel in. I, I find that that's kind of how a lot of the best ideas come about, right? Is just this collision of two different disparate looking topics on the surface of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's really obvious now um, what the transformations have been. You know, in 83, okay, we're just coming off mainframe computers. Personal computers are just starting to come out. You know, the TRS-80 from Radio Shack and the IBM personal computer and all that other stuff. The internet had not taken off yet. I got on the internet fairly early because academics, you know, were on BitNet and ARPANET and and so, like with my thesis advisor, I used to, he had a house in Montana. I was living in Newton, Mass. You know, we used to use BitNet to send the stuff back and forth as fast food modems. So I could kind of see that stuff coming. And then when you go in the early stuff on artificial intelligence, you find that there are a lot of people who are trying to think about what's the difference between people and machines and how they think. And there's fantastic work back then by guys like, you know, Alan Newell and Herb Simon. These are guys out of Carnegie Mellon and Seymour Papert and Marvin Minsky over at, over at MIT. These are these are the real pioneers back in the 50s, 60s. So it really was an inspiration. And I thought, OK, well, if that gets real, what does that do to the service economy? What does that do to the economy in general? So kind of thinking back to when you're working on your, your doctorate degree and researching this this question, and now kind of looking forward some number of years. Sure. Have things progressed along as you thought they would? What are some of the biggest differences? Yeah. Well, yes, in terms of stuff like Google and Amazon and all that other stuff were super obvious to me. Before Google, there was a company called AltaVista, which was out of digital. And I always thought search would be massive because there's massive economies of scale and you're first in the demand chain. You know, just like the Yellow Pages, which nobody remembers, but the Yellow Pages were a hugely profitable business, billions and billions of dollars. Because if you're right there, when people want something, then you're setting up to really, you know, to do something. But I'll tell you the thing I totally missed was social networks. I understood the power of communication and email, uh, but the idea of social networks, I didn't understand what it would mean. And there's a guy named David Reed who came up with this fantastic thing, uh, Reed's Law. And he said, thinking about what's the dominant architecture for a communications network. And David was one of the guys who put together the original uh, internet protocols, the TCP IP protocols. And David's thesis at MIT in the 70s basically demonstrated analytically why a, a smart network with dumb ends would lose to a dumb network with smart ends. 
Okay, let me translate that. So a smart network with dumb ends is like the old phone system before we had smartphones. It's like uh, the old mainframes with telecommunications and uh, tele, you know, with uh, terminals at the end. A dumb network with smart ends is the internet, right? Because the network doesn't have a lot of intelligence in it. It just transports the stuff and the smarts are at the ends. David predicted that in the mid seventies, okay? And he was also one of the guys that worked on the base protocols, the TCP IP protocols, that are underneath the internet. And he came up with this idea in the mid 90s, early 90s, they called Reed's Law. And he said, look, think about it this way. If you wanna know which, which network's gonna win, think about it like this. We have broadcast networks, so like a radio station. So if this podcast gets broadcast on a radio station, a traditional radio station, dumb radio, big power, right? All that stuff. That radio stations, if you look at their value, their economic value, they go up linearly in N. That is, if a station with 2 million people is worth X, a station that reaches 4 million people is worth 2X, okay? So it's just N equals the number of people in the network equals value. That's true, you know, across broadcast networks, old TV, not cable, but old TV. Then you've got a switch network, which, and you call the first one a Sarnoff network after David Sarnoff, the guy who invented the business model for modern radio. Then you have a switch network, which is Metcalf. So Bob Metcalf observed this. He said, look, if you have people on a network, like a phone network where people can talk to each other or a fax network, God, God rest faxes. Remember what those things are? We're on history books, right? That's why you all, you had a dominant phone network because if you have a little phone network and I have a big phone network, and let's say there's a hundred people on my phone network and you add one more person, you add a hundred new connections. Right. Because I can call all those people. All those people can call me. OK, that if you do the math on that, that equals value equals N squared. So the number of people in the network squared. OK, so that goes up much faster. That's why you had one dominant phone network. Then you go to self-organizing networks. And this is David's insight. He said, how does the value model increase? And what he said is it actually goes up by two to the N. And the reason for that is you, you and I, have we can have a relationship here in terms of podcast. Okay, then we can add Billy and Billy and you and I now self-organize around cooking vegetable pasta, right? And then, you know, we join something else that's a political thing. If you do the arithmetic on that, all the combinations are two to the N. A two to the N goes up much faster than N squared and much faster than N equals V, right? So why do we care about this? The reason is that social networks, whether they're called Facebook or Baidu or WhatsApp or whatever the social network is, that self-organizing network is the dominant network form forevermore, unless there's something even better, okay? And so a, re a really easy way to think about this is that Facebook, as we've seen, can do a broadcast like Facebook Live, right? So Facebook can do what Fox News does or what MSNBC does, but Fox News or MSNBC cannot do what Facebook does, right? You can also make phone calls on Facebook, so you can go N squared. But the thing that, that you can't do on the broadcast networks or on the phone network, the way it's configured today, unless you use a social media platform, is that you can't do that self-organizing. So that means that folks like Facebook have the dominant network form, right? So even if you, you know, outlaw Facebook, if you allow another social network, another self-organizing network, that network will dominate. That is fascinating. That is extremely yeah. fascinating and such a great history lesson there uh, as well. I'm just curious now, like, you know, 
thinking back from from when you're in school now, like how much more hyped has AI become? Because I feel like, you know, it's just like all the rage nowadays. Back then, was it something that people were taking seriously or what was the, the general sentiment about this back then? Sure. Yeah, well, my reading of the history of AI is that this is the third wave. There was a wave in the 60s, there was a wave in the 80s, and now this is the third wave. The big differences are, is that in the second wave, it was all about symbol processing. In the third wave, it's about neural networks, okay? And the the reason for that is the world's becoming more computable. So you sent around this law of computability, right? So I think that, and I know it sounds a little abstract, but I think it's important that people understand this. Just like if you want to understand the Industrial Revolution, you have to understand automation. Right. You have to understand the labor, the, the capital substitution for labor and standardization and, and the Ford, you know, assembly line and all that stuff. You get, if you want to understand industrial, the industrial world. And so the basic idea is that in computability and the law of computability is you have the level of knowledge of the phenomenon of interest. So and I'll give an example of the self-driving car. So let's say I want to make a self-driving car back in you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago. I have to make sure the car is computable and the car's driving environment is computable, okay? And so it's a level of knowledge of that phenomenon times the level of digitization equals computability. And think about levels of knowledge in in simple taxonomy like this. When I'm creating knowledge, I start by categorizing. So if you look back in biology and stuff, oh, that's a red finch and that's a blue jay and that's a, right? And the whole field of, of biology begins with naming stuff, right? That's categorization. The next level up from that, once you have the categories, is you start to correlate. You say, oh, when I see the bluebird, I also see the red finch, right? These things go together. Or maybe the bluebird coming here causes the red finch to come. That's the next level. That's causation, Okay. So you have categorization, correlation, causation. With those three things, that's the level of knowledge. Then the other side is how digital is it, right? Do I have a digital description of what it is? When you look back to the Google car, and and this came from a conversation with a guy, Chris Ermson, who was the head engineer at Google for the Google car. And what they did at the Google car is they had a, um, the car itself was pretty computable, but the car's driving environment wasn't. So when they first did the Google car, they put like a half a million dollars worth of sensors in it. They had GPS and they had maps. With those three things, they had a three-foot error. And I'm from Massachusetts where we get some pretty bad drivers. But even in Massachusetts, three feet is like too much when you're driving, right? You end up in the middle of somebody else's car. So they added the thing on the top called the LiDAR, which is a little laser rangefinder. Spins around with a laser. And the early ones, the new ones collect much more data than this, but the early ones collected 1.5 million pieces of data per second, per second, right? So they spin around, spin around, they paint, they get the reflection, they have a million and a half pieces of data per second. By mapping that with the other three pieces, the sensors, GPS, and maps, they are able to build a computable driving environment that the car could drive through. So, you know, so now car is computable. That's great. I can control that, brakes and fluids and wipers and all that stuff. Now the driving environment's computable. Now I have a self-driving car. That is the fundamental thing that's happening all the time. Facebook is busy computing your cognition and precognition. Facebook is computing what social group you're in and your social group uh, many times determines what your actions and attitudes are gonna be. So Facebook is creating a computable environment of people's cognition and their social relationships. 
I've actually done some work in mathematical sociology and the network analysis. You know, Facebook says, hey, you might like this person or you might know this person, all that other stuff. That comes from mathematical sociology, which was pioneered by a guy named Harrison White at Harvard College in 1976. He and another guy named Boring from Cornell, and I forget the third author, wrote a, a, a two-part article in the American Journal of Sociology called Block Modeling. And they came up with a mathematical description of social, of social systems, which is the underpinning of all the mathematical sociology today. So many things I want to get into there. But so, so is this is this idea you talk about big representation versus big data? Is, right. that, is that kind of what you're touching on there? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And so Pat Winston, the guy who used to run the AI lab at MIT, Patrick Henry Winston III, one of the great names of all time, the uh, lovely guy too, brilliant. And um, actually, if you go on YouTube, you can see he does a presentation on presentations, which is spectacular. And um, he, he pointed this out to me. He said, look, a lot of times it's an advancement in representation. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about Uber for a minute. The only way you can have Uber is if you have GPS. What is GPS? Global Positioning System. It's a grid across the entire end maps. By the way, you also need maps. So we've got digital maps. We had maps before. They weren't as comprehensive, but we didn't have GPS. It was only when that was created originally for the military to track subs and, and missiles and stuff and then became commercial, right, that you can find something in XYZ space, but especially XY space, right? Once you have that grid, which is an extension of representation, now I can hang all kinds of things off of that, right? Now I can hang your location, I can hang services, I can do logistics, right? But if I didn't have that grid and I couldn't reference that grid, I don't have Uber, right? I just don't. Another thing, you know, you can look at you know, holding up a can of soda here, right? We got the barcode, that's, an, that's another representation. So when I have a universal barcode system, I can do all kinds of things I otherwise couldn't do. And, you know, to give a more emerging example, some new cancer diagnostics well, first they started, you know, cancer diagnostics, you're taking x-rays and you're feeling lumps and you're taking, you're taking certain chemicals in the blood, in the urine and the stool, right? Okay, great. Now they, then they, they added on high resolution x-rays and MRIs, a new representation. You can go deeper, better. Now there are folks who are studying dogs and, and people and certain dogs can sniff cancer. So when you're having precancerous activity in your body, you actually exhale microparticles of the cancer that can be detected, okay? That's an extension of representation. That's important because I can put AI algorithms all day long onto the images, the MRI images or the x-rays, and you get good advances there. Google has shown that, right? You can predict you know, a week sooner and more accurately than doctors for things like breast cancer just by giving them the radiography, right, the, the x-rays. But this notion of, okay, cancer might be on the molecules that I exhale, that's an extension of representation. That's Machines still stink at that, right? They can't imagine, okay, what representation, what new form of data or new signal or new whatever might I bring in to completely change the game? So going back now to, to Facebook and how they are trying to predict our precognition. How does this work within that context of, of big representation and, and networks? Well, when you think of something like the like, okay, a like is a creation. It's a new, that's a new representation, right? I have a very simple preference assertion, right? Then you think about you in the middle of a social graph. Well, until Facebook was around, nobody had your social graph. Maybe if the NSA was after you for certain things, they might've got it from your metadata and your phone records. Maybe. Okay. So now, 
every individual, I can take, you know, you and I can compare you to somebody else with the same social graph. And I can just move and say, okay, this person saw this ad, went to this location, bought this thing. Now I can put a statistical probability that if you go here, you go to this ad, you go to this location, you're going to do this. Right. It's extremely, extremely fascinating. Absolutely love that. Um, yeah. Definitely the right place to talk about it here with the Artists of Data Science podcast. Uh, definitely got the right audience for that. But I want to take a diversion now and talk about your book, The self made sure. Billionaire Effect. So coming from the strong background in AI and studying, you know, doctorate in, in, in business administration, how did that lead you down the path of studying billionaires? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, um, I was assigned it many times, but I never actually read it, you know, Dante's Inferno, right? But I think at the beginning of it, he says, you know, I woke up in the middle of my life. I, I woke up at 40 in the middle of a dark wood, right? So I kind of like woke up at, you know, 55 in my career. And I said, you know, I've been studying value creation, but I've never really studied the massive value creators, right? And so it was one of those moments. And I thought it'd be great to meet these characters too, you know? So that was really the genesis of the thing. And I'll tell you, we found some surprising stuff, which I really, um, the most surprising thing of everything to me in the book was the fact that four out of five self-made, not inherited, self-made billionaires did it in highly competitive contested markets. I thought as we dug into it, yeah, you get a few that came up with something clever like Howard Schultz. But I thought most of the people would be, oh, new product, new drug, new, you know, a uh, new market, right? Or something like that. That's not the case. What they do is they reinvent an old market in a new way. And when it comes to, and I definitely want to get into some of these habits of mind that you talk about for sure. self-made billionaires, but mm-hmm. I guess what led you to studying habits of mind in particular? I guess, first of all, how would you define a habit of mind? And sure. and what was the the thing that clued you in on on this is the thing that we need to study? Well, we did. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with, you know, different research methods and so forth, but we didn't believe that we had, we first we examined, you know, are there good models that we could go test or tweak or, or mash up? And we didn't find any that we liked. So what we did is we started with a case-based method. So we looked at all 1,500 uh, billionaires in the world at the time. There's many more now, it's about 24, 2,500. And then we looked for those who are self-made, of which there are about 880. Then we pulled out the ones that either looked like they were crooks or we couldn't see how they made their money. So that took out a lot of the uh, Chinese billionaires and the Russians and so forth. Not that they're all crooks, but you just, a lot of it's not transparent. A lot of them are crooks, but that's another whole thing. So we didn't count that. And that gets you down about 660. We did a very high level profile of all 660. Then we picked 120 evenly spread across women and men and locations and race and stuff like that, as much as we could within the sample. We reflected the sample, right? We didn't oversample for for certain things. And then we got, then we approached them and interviewed as many as we could get. We had a convenience sample on interviews. Okay. That's a case-based method. So the way a good research approach with a case-based method is to do inductive analysis and then deductive, inductive, deductive. So you come up with, hey, here's what we think might be going on. Then you'll try to check against the facts, right? And that's what we did. So we came with habits of mind because we look for stuff like people have said, oh, they're dyslexic or they're a middle child or they're a first child or they grew up poor. And none of those were true. Right. And I guess, how would you then define this concept of, of habit of mind? Basically, we thought of it as a pattern of action that we saw across different folks. 
And, you know, rather than use a fancier word around heuristic or protocol or something like that, which might have been a little more accurate, but less less appealing as a as a term. So we came up with this notion of habit of mind because it you know, it's pretty down to earth and that we think reflected the core of what we're trying to say. And before we jump into these these habits of mind, um, I'm, I'm curious, like we always think of for me, at least when I hear the term billionaire, I just automatically tie it to the word entrepreneur. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering what would your definition of an entrepreneur be? Oh, um, I can tell you the definition of self-made, which relates to that. With self-made, we said they had to start with 10 million bucks or less. So they had to do a hundred fold increase in what they had, which made it. And my definition of an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm very, very generous with the notion of an entrepreneur. Anybody who, anybody who is self-sustaining in terms of, you know, their income and, and capability and so forth, I think is, you know, let's call them self-employed. I think anybody who for a sustained period of time creates jobs for others as well as for them and also covers there to me as an entrepreneur. So that could be the pizza guy down the corner or whatever. Because I think that the ability to create jobs for people, meaningful work is the highest calling of any business. And is there like a specific skill that you can point to somebody and say, you know what, you've got all the pieces right there. Like you got it all right there. You just need this one skill and you'll be an entrepreneur. Is there something like that? Is there like a key missing skill or a key skill to entrepreneurship? I think that the most important thing, I think, I think there's a couple of base things. One is that you have to be comfortable with being your own boss. Every, not everybody, the vast majority of people think they want to be their own boss, but they don't want to live with the uncertainty, the definition, what's right, what's wrong, all, you know, who's responsible. Cause you know, that as Elon Musk said, he said, entrepreneuring is like staring into the abyss and chewing broken glass. Right. And I think that because of a combination of our schooling system and our culture, unknowingly, people are taught to worship entrepreneurs, worship is too strong, admire entrepreneurs. But on the other hand, school is very structured. There's very little open time. There's very little self-definition that is then evaluated deeply. Like a lot of the self-definitional stuff has a very weak evaluation because like, let's say writing classes, writing classes have gotten dumbed down. And one of the big reasons is it's very labor intensive to teach somebody how to write. Right. Because I can't give you I can give you general rules, but unless I examine your work and go over it with you so that you understand how I look at your work, which is a one on one labor intensive thing. That's not filling out, you know, multiple choice and adverbs and verbs and good paragraph and all that other stuff. Right. So the same thing is, I think that we don't educate kids in a way that they are exploring, they're designing their own environment or designing their own space because the evaluation of that, the feedback is super labor intensive, okay? And our model's just not built for that in the main. Of course, there are exceptions. So I think that the the answer to your question, the first thing is you have to be comfortable with a blank sheet of paper. The vast majority of people think they want that blank sheet of paper, but once they get it, they are very uncomfortable. Okay, that's the first thing. And the second thing, and I know everybody says it, but it's so true, it's the being able to manage your emotions in the context of failure. Your emotions, not your intellect. And that, again, that, that deep notion of persistence, 
the ability to, to, to fail and keep going, the ability to, to just, you know, reconfigure, to pivot, to go, to look for something new, to create, to not shut down. Um, there's a, a story about um, one of the billionaires, I'm trying to remember his last name. Uh, he's the guy who owns the Staples Center. Anyway, um, early in his career, he had, it's in the book as well, he had, um, he had leased a bunch of oil wells in Texas. And he's driving away, this is before cell phones, and, and he's hocked up to his eyeballs for, with this stuff, right? And the oil wells go on fire. So he's really in trouble, right? So at the time, there was a, as you know from the book, you know, John Wayne was filming a movie called Hellfighters, which was about Red Adair, the famous uh, oil well fire fighter. And if you've never seen an oil well fire, I've never seen one in person, but if you, I mean, they're, they're a sight to behold and hard to deal with. Anyway, so this guy had the presence of mind to call up the producer of Hellfighters and say, look, because he, first he called Red Adair, he said, will you come put out my fire? He said, I don't do anything on credit. You haven't got any money. Everybody knows you're hocked up to your eyeballs. No. And so then he calls up the producer and says, well, how about if I let you guys film while Red Adair puts the fire up so that you guys don't have to build it in Hollywood? So he said, great. So he takes the money from the Hollywood producers and he pays off Red Adair to put his fire up. I mean, now that is an entrepreneur, somebody who has literally his assets are burning and he figures out how to make money to save them. I remember that story in the book. I thought that was freaking such creativity right there. Just <laughs> such unbelievable creativity. Oh man. And it seems like entrepreneurship is, it's almost like a meta skill, right? It's not just mm -hmm. one particular skill. It's this, you know, it requires a whole bunch of different skills and requires a high level of activation energy, being able to lead yourself and pursue when there's nobody breathing down your back telling you have to do it. Right. So that's, it definitely, I, I love that definition that you gave. It's very beautifully put. And in your book, you talk about two, I want to say characters, kind of. There's the mm -hmm. producer and the performer. Yes. Talk to us about who these two are. Yes. Well, the idea of producer and performer, the term producer draws inspiration from like Hollywood producers, like the people who put everything together, right? You get the director, you get the actors, you figure out what the market is, you get the financing, you get the distribution. So that's the idea is you're, you're the designer of the business system, if you will. And every competitive product or business is a system, not a single thing. Even Starbucks about coffee, it's a business system, right? It's the labor, it's the branding, it's the sourcing, it's the eco-friendliness, right? It's a whole bunch of stuff together. And so the producer really is the designer of the system and the performer is someone who helps them get it done. Usually producers can live with different performers but performers rarely have the same level of, of economic productivity of a producer. So I'll give you a perfect example, Gates and Balmer. Okay. When Balmer was running Microsoft, it was not only flat, it actually went down some. Now this is a company that is the dumb, while, and he missed mobile, he missed the cloud. He, you know, he missed all the big things. So Balmer was a great performer with Gates driving him. But he wasn't, he didn't have the chops to be a producer. Okay. And you can see it in the stock price. Now, Satya, much more of a producer, right? He understands like how to think about the shape. He brought him back into, you know, physical devices, right? The whole surface revolution. He put him heavily into cloud, right? He's pushing hard on AI and security. You know, he has more of a sense of like what's really going on. 
you also see a similar thing in art and music. So, you know, you got Richards and Jagger right on the Rolling Stones. You know, I, I think Richards is better as a solo artist than Jagger personally. Right. You look at Vincent van Gogh, his brother, Theo was his, you know, touch point, And he worked with the, with the galleries and so forth to get Vincent shown. Right. So Madame Curie and her husband, right. Her husband was intimately involved in their discoveries together. So uh, you see it in science and art as well, that a lot of people do their best work in a, in a combo. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. One of my, my idols is that. Naval Ravikant, and he talks about the builder and the seller. And to me, that kind of rang true with the concepts of producer and performer. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so when it comes to producers, performers, builders, and sellers, what would you say is biggest point of similarity between these two? Well, I think that first in my experience with the producer performer stuff, it's, I didn't see builder seller because what I saw was complementary builder sellers, right? So, um, you know, you take a look at something like Bloomberg with Tom Segunda and Mike Bloomberg, okay? Mike is one of the world's great salespeople, right? He's got an ego, ego, ego bigger than Texas, right? And just the guy. And you have to remember now, he's like, what is it, 70 billion or something crazy, right? And it's good to be Mike Bloomberg, right? You got your, you your own tower on, you know, 53rd and Lex. I mean, it's a, it's a good day, right? Anyway. Um, yeah, weekend of Bermuda, whatever. The I would my understanding of what they did is so Tom Segunda was the chief technology officer guy right there. And Tom's also a billionaire, but but not as rich as Mike. You know, Tom is just as important in selling to the technology part. So let's say Mike's selling the front of the house and the traders and all that other stuff. Tom is selling into the CIO suite. It's like, here's how you're gonna get done, here's how it's going in the plumbing. You need both of those audiences to work, right? Mike's saying, here's what the content's gonna be. Tom says, here's how you're going to get it done over time. Here's what the response time is going to be. Here's the databases, here's so forth, right? So it's really with complementarity. Um, and so I think that I think that's that's important. I think the the big distinction for me is the producer knows how to deal with a blank sheet of paper and the performer doesn't. So the producer, you know, I don't know if you've ever done any drawing or so forth. My undergraduate degree is in sculpture. So you know, about figure ground and you have a map behind you, you know, and you can see the figure ground and that, right? Once you have the outlines of the, of the, of the continents, lots of people can fill it in, right? And so it's just a matter of who does the first outlines. And in what way would you say that these two kind of diverge the most? Like if there was like one thing that you'd say separate sure. completely. I think that, the producers usually need more creative control of the end product, right? It's got to have their voice in it, their stamp, their insight. And that's not universally true, but it's largely true. And you can see it. I mean, when Howard Schultz came back into Starbucks, you know, he got rid of the whole like soup thing and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. He got rid of the microwaves because he didn't like the way the smell was and the, 
you know, it's like, now nah, this is not Starbucks. I know what Starbucks is, you know? So I think you, you lose that. I mean, you, you saw it happen in, um, I mean, take IBM, right? IBM, when I was a kid, you know, with Tom Watson Jr., son of the founder, Tom Watson Sr., the place had a personality, right? I don't think you can say IBM has a personality now. Oracle's got a personality, right? So, and I think that's one man, that's one manifestation of the creative control of the founder. Thank you very much for that. I want to take a deep dive into a couple of these habits of mine, which sure. I think will be really interesting to the data scientists in the audience. Starting off with my favorite one, which is empathetic imagination. Can you define this term for us? Sure. To think about what someone needs when it, when it hasn't been completely expressed takes a tremendous amount of empathy, but you also need to make it into something that people can react to. So. You know, when when somebody like Mike Bloomberg decided that, okay, the traders need an integrated set of data real time, you know, they're getting this from Quotron and this from Reuters and whatever, right? All of that stuff integrated in one spot. He had enough understanding when he left Solomon Brothers, he was fired from Solomon Brothers, right? To know that that's, that was the next evolution of what the traders needed and would want. Okay. Nobody was saying to him, hey, take this and take that and take this and stick it all together. But he had enough knowledge and imagination and empathy for how they're doing their work. So that's, to me, it's really important to understand. And we use that language, empathetic imagination, because it invites ration and rational behavior and emotion, right? You're never going to put it another way. You're never going to design a great product by doing a conjoint analysis of known forms, right? What is it that allows producers to to see what others can't? I think at one level, it's very simple, which is really trying to figure out how to delight your customers. And what's related to that, and the reason we put it together is on the inventive execution. Because if you think about most innovation in large companies, right, uh, they make at least two big mistakes. One is they separate the thinkers and the doers. And nothing great has ever been handed off to somebody else. Hey, Harpreet, I have this fantastic idea. Here's the business model. Go for it. Never happened. Or you doing it to me, right? Because it's not yours. It's not mine. So and corporations routinely do that. We'll have the ideation team and then we'll pan it over to the implementation team. Wrong. Yes. In terms of adjacent or incremental improvement, which can be significant in a growing market, I'm not saying it's not a good idea to do economically, but you're never getting anything breakthrough. And the second thing is, Giving an innovation, compromising an innovation for the way that people already do business is like giving your loved one a bouquet of flowers through a fan, right? So you take a bouquet of flowers, you say, look, honey, and you stuff it through the fan. And then you look at it on the ground, you say, it's the same stuff. And the answer is it's not, right? And I'll give you an example. A a buddy of mine was pitching one of the major hotel chains on this whole eco-friendly idea. And, and it was, you were going to drive up and you're going to see the, you know, he, he'd done the market segmentation. There's a premium segment that probably folks like you and I, that we'd be willing to pay, you know, 15 to 30% more to come into a full on eco local, local produce, you know, net zero carbon uh, place to, you know, do your electric car. Right. The, so imagine like a La Quinta, but that, right. So well-priced. And so he brought it to one of the major hotel chains and they said, oh yeah, we've got this covered. He said, really? 
they said, yeah, you know, we got the little things in the bathrooms about water and, you know, put the towel in the tub or whatever. And, you know, we've got, we've got some local eggs in the breakfast menu. And he's like, no, no, no. He said, you know, we have to get the power from a different place. They're like, oh, we can't do that. We have power contracts for, you know, we'll just, so we'll try to figure out the renewable part of, you know, ComEd. And it's like, uh, and you need produce, you know, oh no, well, we've got a central kitchen that gets it from, you know, directly from Tyson's and, you know, so we're going to have their chicken, but yeah, we can have the eggs. And he's like, no, well, no, it's just all, you know, and just go, it's what my buddy calls death by a thousand paper cuts. Right. And so compromise, 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 compromise. And so that's a real, so you can't really deliver. And then you have the worst of both worlds. You have the major hotel chain saying we did the eco thing and nobody cares but the answer is you never really did the eco thing you did the bouquet on the floor in pieces and nobody wanted that now people may not have wanted my bouquet anyway but we don't even know you know so what is it that allows them to have this merging of empathetic insight with imagination like is there like is there a cognitive process that happens in their brain is it is it meditation like what is it that that helps them make these connections yeah, well, I think it's different for different folks. I mean, if you look at a bunch of the, if you look at a bunch of the baby boomers in Silicon Valley, a number of them say it had a lot to do with their use of hallucinogens and things like that, not cocaine and that kind of stuff. But you know, Steve Jobs talks about in his, you know, in Walter Isaacson's book about the amount of acid he did and so forth. You know, I'm not saying you need to do acid to come up with something creative, but whatever. I think that I think having a figuring out how to untether your mind from the habits of the industrial world is an important thing because the habits of the industrial world and standardization and routinization is so great. You don't even notice it. And if you want to, if you want an existence proof of that, just note how few people paint their cars, anything but the normal colors. Think about the amount of, you own the asset. You can paint it any color you want. You can do anything. And how many people do that? Like practically nobody. So the forces of social control are so strong, you don't even see them, right? So, I mean, think, think how crazy that is. You pay 30, 40, 60, 80,000 bucks for an asset and you don't feel like you can change it. It's like, yeah. what's that about? That's it. I mean, give or take, right? Point, Certain yeah. communities, but even those communities change it in a similar way, right? There's not a lot of variety in the way those communities change those cars, right? That's very, very interesting point, yeah. Yeah, I like so if you don't, yeah. Oh, sorry, go on. Go on. No, I'm just saying. So just to remind yourself of how accustomed we are to being, quote unquote, normal. So somehow you have to be able to pull back from normal to give space for the imagination for something different. Yeah, I think you talk about this in the book, this concept of di- divergent thinking. Is that, yeah. is that going down yeah. that, that path? Yes. And I think there's a step before, which we didn't put in the book because I hadn't thought of it at the time. It's really, how do you get the space for detachment? And you asked about meditation. Great example. Right. So I get out of monkey mind and I start to get into another, you know, state. I think it's connected thinking generally. Now, some people are more empathetic in terms of their impact on others, but I do think it's connected thinking. So you're taking a piece from here, a piece from here, you bring it together in a new way. You're imagining something new. Right. I mean, it's, it drives me a bit bananas when people say, oh, well, you know, they didn't invent everything. Yeah. No joke. Every invention is built on other people's invention. The fact we're talking to each other is an invention, right? So you, you can't even think except inside other people's concepts. You're taught other people's concepts, language, up, down, family. I mean, 
you're taught created concepts. So to say that you're always building in somebody else's work is completely tautological, right? What can we do to kind of think in that way? Are there some exercises that, that we could do, right? Is it, you know? Sure. Yeah. I think the best, I think the best exercise is the one that Elon Musk does around reasoning from first principles. Okay. So if you're clear on the objective and you say, okay, in order to get there, I'm, you must do this or this must change. So I saw him present at MIT many years ago. And one of the kids asked him, he said, have you thought about a winged body for your trip to, around the, you know, for interplanetary travel? And he shot right back and he said, no runways on Mars, unless you want to hit an uneven surface at supersonic speed, it has to be power descent. Okay, the clarity of that, it's like, okay, yes, okay, reusability, I get it. The kid says, I get it. Give me a winged body like the space shuttle. But he hadn't thought through the first principle. It's like, whatever. If you look at his uh, the Starship flight recently, do you know why he created the Merlin engine? No. Okay. It's because he wants to be able to, it's the first ever uh, production rocket engine that runs on methane rather than kerosene. Now, why do you want to do this? Because finding kerosene on Mars may not happen. And if it does happen, it's going to be hard because you get kerosene from oil. Okay. Methane, on the other hand, they know Mars has, and he has a whole way that he's going to harvest methane on Mars and oxygen. So he can harvest methane and oxygen on Mars. So he had to go back and develop a whole methane-based rocket engine, which no one had ever done. Methane is slightly less combustible than kerosene, so the efficiency is slightly less in terms of a pure input basis. But that's reasoning from first principles. Okay, if I want to get back from Mars, I get two choices. I carry kerosene up there, which is totally nutty. Or I figure out how to build a rocket engine that runs methane. Genius. And to reason from first principles, it's almost like you have to quiet your mind and just think about the absolute fundamentals. Because if you start getting distracted by all the edge cases and what about this and what about that, that can really derail you and, and prevent that from happening. Absolutely. And I think I think the brilliance of Elon's thinking is that he combines that with preferences, consumer preferences and economics. So what I mean by this, and I remember, I remember somebody was complaining when the Model S came out and it was a hundred thousand bucks, you know, tuned up a little bit or started at 70, right? 68. And this person was saying, oh, well, you have to make a mass market car and all that other stuff. And Elon came back and he said, well, if you delve into my super secret strategy, which has been on the internet for five years, he said, he said, you will see that I'm writing the scale curve down. And, you know, by the Model E, we'll start to hit it. And we're going to go for one even cheaper than that. And so he understood that you have a, a premium early adopter market. And if you can successfully deliver there, that gets you economies of scale to then drive the, drive the scale curve down. Right. You look at what he's doing with Neuralink. OK, so. Neuralink, new brain-computer interface, what's the leading edge of brain-computer interface that people will pay for now? It's for quadriplegic and paraplegic and injured people or diseased people. Okay, great. That's what they're getting into. And I think it's great. Somebody comes back from, from Afghanistan, they're half blown up by an IED. They need an artificial leg. They want to be able to connect to their brain so they can just think about moving their legs and their mechanical legs and it works. What a fantastic application. So he doesn't start saying, look, I'm going to give you you know, a new interface to uh, Halo, you know, on PS17, right? So, and then same thing, but that technology, right, will become the brain-computer interface. 
as as he perfects that. So he is writing the class function curve, and he's willing to serve different markets because he's super clear where he's headed, which is he wants he thinks that the I/O between us and computers is too slow. I think that sets us up perfectly for the next habit of mine I want to get into because mm-hmm. I think Elon is a great exemplar of that. Uh, based on these examples, even if is this patient urgency, right? So talk to us about this, this concept of this duality of time and, yes. and especially how do you see this patient urgency playing a role in these days that we're in right now with this pandemic? Well, I, I fortunately and unfortunately, I mean, it's horrible what's happening in the pandemic. Some of the good stuff is that it actually is making people patiently urgent, right? That they have enough and you hear, Look, you hear lots of bad things, but you also hear good things where people are saying, hey, look, I actually have time to reflect or think or read or go deeper or do fewer things. Right. And the in different domains in demographics and technology, generally speaking, you can plot most trends, not all trends. Right. But like the mRNA technology that is being used for the vaccine, for those of you who have been paying attention, right, you could see mRNA technology coming along. Now, they did a heck of a job to pump it out in the German cup, the Turkish couple in Germany and stuff that, you know, absolute geniuses. I don't want to diminish the, the brilliance of what they've done. But, you know, mRNA technology has been around for about 20 years. Right. And so they've been riding that curve and people knew that, you know, and it's going to help cancer. OK, you want another future? Cancer is not going to be completely solved. You're going to have big hunks of cancer getting solved. Vaccine. I mean, there's already vaccines for all kinds of cancer and, you know. It's just fantastic, right? And mRNA technology and CRISPR technology, I mean, it's going to be mind-blowing. And so that would be an example of a technology. And then you have demography, right? You know, even with big wars, you generally don't mess around with the demographics that much. There are certain exceptions. Russia killed enough of their own young young people that they changed the pyramid. They changed it from a pyramid to a stovepipe and things like that. But they're, generally speaking, right? Unless we have a more deadly plague and stuff, demographics are pretty predictable. So, you know, when you're doing your, when you think about patient urgency, you might have a concept and you say, okay, well, technology has to be here for that to happen. So I'm going to pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, right? Till I think, okay, now's the time to start to invest because the investor window usually is even the, the longest term investors in the US are usually about five to seven years, right? Venture capital, right? Depends on when you get in the fund and all that other stuff. That's why these knucklehead, you know, libertarians in Silicon Valley say, oh, the end of government. All those jokers are making money off governmental investment. You know, I mean, nobody was doing who who started a self-driving car. DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, with their Mojave thing, right, that drive 100 miles in the Mojave Desert, you know, without a person in it. They've been funding that for, for well over a decade. Right. And as soon as it drove 100 miles, DARPA stops funding it. That's how Chris Urmson got to Google. And Chris went and grabbed the people, all the talent from the best teams he was competing with on the DARPA grant. So for 10 years before Google invests in the self-driving car, the government's been investing. Same thing was true with the NIH and the genetics, right? Okay, Craig Vendor came along and plotted it. Well, the technology before that was government invested. The internet, 1965, the uh, Office of Naval Research did funded a thing called Aloha Net, which was packet switching among the Hawaiian Islands. Okay, there's no friggin' venture capitalist in 1965 that's going to put money behind packet switching. I mean, AT and T and ITT own the market. 
So anyway, so you can look at these things and you can follow them over time. And you say, okay, when it hits here, it might be interesting. Or when the demographics hit here, when the population has this going on, right? And the problem inside most organizations is big organizations don't have a way to pay attention to something cheaply. They're great. It's like, okay, we're going to mobilize. We're going to learn. We're going to buy. We're going to boom, boom. Because they run on a, either, if it's not quarterly, it's yearly. If it's not yearly, it's every other year, but it's no more than every other year. And most careers only last. People are only only in jobs a little bit less than five years in corporate America, except for some of the senior jobs they last a little longer. So who's going to start a project? You know, they get on the ground for a year or two and learn the organization. The longest project they're going to do is three, four years, right, before they're moved on to something else. So you're never going to have the patient urgency to follow a theme and invest when it's right. There's so many things there that I've got to digest. I can't wait to listen to the playback of this and uh, take some notes. There's a lot of great, great history, great insight there. Thank you so much for that. Within that same chapter of the book that mm-hmm. you talked about for, for patient yeah. urgency, there's this idea of transient hypofrontality. And I thought that was really interesting and fascinating and something that I feel the audience could, could benefit from if they were to incorporate or exercise some of this in their own life. Would you mind describing what this is and how can we use it? Well, the basic idea is that, you know, can you, and I'm going from memory now, it's been a while since I've thought about transient hypofrontality. Can you, can you basically persist in an idea over time? There's a, there's another term too, where I think of it as letting go of something long enough to let your intuition work. Right. So the notion of if you can stop your front brain from thinking about something and you allow your whole brain to look at it. And there's a guy whose name I'm forgetting now who said, basically, if you sleep on something, like if you, before you go to sleep and you, it's the Zenerneck or anyway, sounds like Rubberneck um, is the guy's name. And that you let your non-prefrontal cortex mind work on something. And that, you know, and, and artists and, mystics and everything. I've talked about this forever. I mean, it depends on your epistemology, you know, your view of the world, but I do weigh in with, with the notion that human consciousness is a focusing mechanism and that things flow through people as much as get created in people. And so the transient hypofrontality, I think helps open the aperture to the things that flow through you. Uh, because depending upon how ego bound you are, I think that can either be useful or interference to the flow of, you know, the flow state and, you know, really being in the creative flow. Yeah, I absolutely love that. When I, when I first heard about that concept in your book, um, that's the first time I've ever been introduced to that. And that kind of led me down a path of studying brain science in my free time a little bit more. I'm really fascinated by that now. And I was interviewing somebody else a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Barbara Oakley. And um, she mm-hmm. was talking about um, this idea of like the some part of your brain reticular activating system where you start. Yes. It, it's a diffuse mode kind of thinking. And mm-hmm. It's your your subconscious will continue to work on a problem when you're not focusing on on something. And I find that, you know, when I'm working on some gnarly bits of code or I'm just absolutely stuck trying to design an experiment or something or just yeah, I can't think anymore, like my brain physically hurts, just get up and walk around for, for an hour, get some fresh sure. air, come back and just insights are, are bound. And that was a huge turning point for me and in my daily kind of practice after I read about that and did some more research on transient hyperfrontality, I started mm-hmm. to incorporate more long walks in my day. So now twice a day, I, I just get up and I go for an hour long walk and just let those, oh. let those ideas kind of come to, come to the top. 
So another one of the habits of mind that I found really fascinating and kind of touched on a little bit here throughout some of the stories you're talking about, but it's the concept of inventive execution. So, so what is inventive execution and why is it that it begins with design? Inventive execution really is a, a new way of getting something done to not compromise what the customer is actually seeing. And people, a lot of times, usually successful new businesses do a thing differently as well as do a different thing. Okay. And um, so there's a, uh, there's a, there's a company, Silicon Valley, forgetting its name right now, it essentially allows you to rent all the stuff in your, in your possession that you're not using. So say you've got a, you know, a camper that you want to rent, or let's say you've got, you know, uh, eight chairs and you only use them on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, you know, you want, you really only use four. You want the other four stored someplace because you don't like them cluttering up your apartment, right? You can put these things, as long as they can be carried by one person reasonably, you can put these things in storage and you can just have them there and the storage is cheap, especially if you give them a bunch of notice for the logistics or you can rent them, you know, so they store them for you and you get the rental, you get a piece of the rental. Okay. The guy who did this took, did backhaul to, while he's experimenting to the minimum viable product with DoorDash, because the DoorDash people aren't making any money as they're going back to the, coming back to the restaurant or going something. So he actually did, he, so he just used the, the, the excess capacity of DoorDash and Uber Eats to do his proof of concept. Okay. So that's, that's an example of inventive execution, right? You know, you have uh, when when uh, when KB Homes, when the guy um, Eli Broad did KB Homes, the traditional model, as you remember from the book, was buy the land, sit on it for a while, you know, build slow. He engineered the living daylights out of it. When he bought land, he developed it like crazy and got the cash back quickly. And he engineered every single part of the homes like. You probably remember, you know, he didn't do basements. He did lean-tos instead of garages. This allowed him to reach a different price point for a single home that people could hit. And, you know, so his cash was fantastic. If you go back in the early days of Dell, right, he was the first one to have people order online. He had negative working capital because he would get your order and collect your cash, and then he'd pay the vendors later. Meanwhile, you got your computer. Well, nobody in the computer business had done negative working capital before. So inventive execution. So he could grow like crazy. And most fast growth businesses choke on their the need for working capital. He was just the opposite. The faster he grew, the more cash he had. So beautiful examples of, you know, doing a thing a new way that creates new value. It's something about those type of businesses where you can say like, it's the, like the Airbnb for your stuff or like, right. yeah, like that, that I like that. And again, just kind of combining two, two, different industries like there used to be rent centers or rent you know and now there's airbnb let's combine those two together and perfect rent your right. stuff out yeah that's that's awesome yes and and even uh storage right so instead mm-hmm. of paying somebody for your storage so they paid a lot less and then you have an option to buy i mean an option to rent so, yeah it's just a lot of this i mean goes back to this whole notion of the law of computability why can i do all that because i can compute a symbolic version of all that stuff and coordinate it and contract for it and deal with the logistics, right? So the marginal cost, you could do all that stuff in the past, but the marginal cost of the transactions was so high that there was no value left, right? You take the marginal cost of those transactions down and down and down and down and down, then you create new economies of scale. Gee, I've got coverage now. That DoorDash person can pick up six things on the way home, right? Because I've got coverage. And 
you know, it doesn't cost me anything to do the transaction. So all those things are, you know, coming together. Last question before we jump into a real quick random round. And that is, yep. it's 100 years in the future. What do you want yes. to be remembered for? Oh, boy. I'd really like to be remembered for helping people create a more generative kind of capitalism. What I mean by that is generative capitalism is low entropy, high inclusion. Okay. Because I think that I think capitalism is a good system if you can fix the market externalities around pollution and resource use and so forth and you know killing the killing the planet. And if you can have higher inclusion across the socioeconomic spectrum, uh, both in terms of wealth and age and skills. So I'd like to be a contributor to that mission. Absolutely love that, John. Let's go to a real quick random round. We're going to pull up a random question generator. We'll just do a couple of questions out of here. <laughs> First Hello. one is, what talent would you show off in a talent show? Singing. Have you ever saved someone's life? No. What's something you learned in the last week? Oh, something I learned last week was that uh, IntelliLink is almost operational. Starlink is almost operational. And what are you currently reading Oh, um, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Rutger Bregman's um, The uh, Practical Utopian, um, going back and uh, rereading Walter Langer's The Mind of Adolf Hitler, uh, which is a psychological profile by the OSS of Hitler back in 38. I've been reading a lot of stuff about uh, the immune system, because I think that uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of interesting innovation happening in that era. So those are some of the things. John, where can people find you? How can they connect with you online? Sure. The LinkedIn's great, which is just, you know, John Sviokla. My email is just john at sviokla.com. I, those are probably the two best places because I've not been doing much upgrading on my website. I've been doing more stuff through LinkedIn. So really LinkedIn and uh, email would be great. Yeah, I love, you know, look, I love new ideas. I love talking with people about new ideas. It's very kind of you to have me on your show. Yeah, I love doing this kind of work. And uh, and I think this notion, I hope we can get more people involved in thinking through deeply entrepreneurship, computability, and this notion of generative capitalism, low entropy, high inclusion, because I think we can, we need to evolve the paradigm. I absolutely love it, John. I'll be sure to include all of your links right there in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking time at our schedule to be on the show today. Really appreciate having you here. Lovely to be with you, Harpreet, and good luck. Thank you. 